0: Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast, your go-to daily podcast on all things Miami Marlins. As always, I'm your host, Arm Leighton. I am a minor league play-by-play broadcaster, longtime Marlins writer, as well as a prospect writer and analyst. And in today's episode, we are going to recap a little bit of the Rays series. We're going to preview the upcoming series with the Cardinals. And this is a little bit of a time crunch for me as I'm recording this just before the Marlins are about to get underway about two hours before first pitch where Trevor Rogers will be pitching against the Cardinals to open up the series. So I'm not going to focus too much on just game one. I'm going to try to preview the whole series. So for those that don't listen right away, this episode won't become stale or dated for you. I'm going to talk about the entire upcoming series as a whole and also, again, recapping some of the big takeaways from series one against the Rays where the Marlins could have easily taken that series winning the second game where they should have, blowing a two-run lead, but then bouncing back anyways to just put on an offensive onslaught, scoring 12 runs and beating the Rays to avoid that sweep in Game 3. The matchups for this series coming up with the Marlins and the Cardinals before I recap the Rays real quickly. I think the pitching matchups favor the Marlins, so just wanted to tease that and why I think the Marlins could actually come out really hot here and potentially sweep this Cardinals ball club. I believe they could do it with the way these pitching matchups are shaking out, and I will tell you why. When I get there, let's start with the recap of this Ray series. I talked a little bit about game one and how I don't really care that the Marlins got shut down in game one, because I think glass now is Really, a Cy Young contender now that he's added that third pitch. He went slider heavy, actually throwing it more than his curveball, and nobody's really seen the slider before, so it's just unfair. And you could tell that the hitters just were not prepared for it whatsoever. Starling Marte, I think he had four Ks in that ball game, and then two games later has four hits. So it wasn't like Marte is lost at the plate. It was just a perfect example of how nasty Glass now was and how unfair it was for him to really even just come out there and unveil a pitch that nobody has gotten a really good chance to see. And that was... Pretty fun to watch, minus the fact that it was at the Marlins' expense. It was fun to watch. The interesting storyline there, of course, and I'm not going to go too far into this one because I think if you keep up on Twitter, you know that this was uh, well discussed between me and old friend Joe Frisaro, but I thought it was interesting that Tyler Glass now went up there with really no intention to swing whatsoever, and I think that obviously came from the Rays because I was made aware of some videos that had surfaced from some interviews before the season then was Glass now saying no man like I love to hit I want pitchers to keep being able to hit and I want to get my swings in there so apparently he tweaked his back a little bit and you know, that's not something that you're just going to come away with when you're watching a really athletic pitcher move well on the mound, on the defensive side of things, and also just carve up hitters. Then he gets up to the plate and he's not swinging. You're not going to say, oh, I wonder if he's injured. That wasn't really anything that crossed my mind. Maybe I should have done my due diligence there. And that was just a very unique situation. Regardless, it's a perfect example of why hitters shouldn't or pitchers, excuse me, shouldn't be hitting. Because if he's good enough to pitch on the mound, but doesn't feel good enough to swing, then just why even have him up there. There should never be a situation in professional sports where somebody is up there and does not try. That's just the craziest thing to me that that's even acceptable in any way whatsoever. Ended up being the beginning of an interesting uh, conversation. I'll call it on Twitter with the very kind Joe sorrow and I apologize for those who uh, may have had their feed blown up by that. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about that, but I I just wanted to. I think just. Express here Um, for those that did uh, come to my backing there that I appreciate it. Um, I'm sorry if you got the block as well. And I'm sorry for really instigating anything there. I should have really just not taken the bait there. Um, You know, when you are getting that kind of criticism and honestly just disrespect from somebody that you have read since you were six years old and uh, someone that you have been very kind to and even uh, messaged on numerous occasions, congratulating them on their retirement, thanking them for their work throughout the years and just always being respectful to them, it's definitely disappointing and, and upsetting to a degree. And I had that moment of like, you know, what did I do to deserve this? But sometimes you don't do things that warrant the reaction that you get from people and you have to accept that. And that's something that I just wanted to put out there and apologize for, you know, just blowing this whole thing up. It was unprofessional on my end and uh, I shouldn't have even really uh, instigated that. I'm sure it was entertaining for some of you. So maybe you're like, why are you even apologizing? It was a ton of fun to watch. Uh, But for others, you know, it, it may be a little bit annoying to see like media members going at it. I know that would bother Me. Uh, For those who may not know what I'm talking about because they're not on Twitter, um, nothing crazy, but really just to boil it down into a sentence or two, Joe Frosaro didn't like the way I worded a tweet and it turned into mayhem of him just attacking me as a person, as a writer, and uh, really just calling me not a journalist and, you know, just making it personal, like I said, uh, despite, you know, me not really taking the bait and still being respectful. So uh, that is my bad. Uh, I will not be engaging in any kinds of arguments or anything like that as things move in the future. I'm going to be bigger than that and better than that. So uh, thank you for those again who uh, came to my support, but hopefully I won't come into situations here where you're going to have to defend me because again, that is just very juvenile and I am a big boy now at 23 years old and hope that at 60 or whatever, however many, however many years Joe Forsaro has been on this earth uh, at that point in my career, I hope to welcome the next generation of sports media members with open arms and encourage them to be themselves and just chase their dreams. And that's what I think everybody should do and I think that's a good learning lesson whether it's in the sports world or wherever you are in life. Don't gatekeep your profession. Encourage the youth and you know that usually will pay dividends back to you. But at the very least it'll be fulfilling and it will continue to grow the game that we love which is something that we should all share as a common ground. Anyways, Back to talking about the important things and not the Twitter drama. The Marlins and Rays, that was a good series, really. It was a frustrating one at times, but I think when you look at game three, there's a lot of big takeaways from that ball game that I hope are takeaways for this Marlins front office and for Don Mattingly as well. And it's one is very obvious here, right? Cooper and Aguilar need to be in the lineup every single day. Cooper quite literally cannot do anything else to prove that he is the best hitter that the Marlins have and the most consistent hitter that the Marlins have, let alone just prove that he belongs in the lineup every single day and gives them the best chance to win when he's in the lineup and not on the bench. Like, what else could he do? He's literally putting up gargantuan numbers dating from the end of last year to spring training this year to the limited at-bats he's already gotten in this first series. There's nothing else this guy can do. And again, it's not the Marlins' fault, right? Bonus is not totally on the Marlins because when they made the decision to bring back Aguilar, that was under the presumption that there would be a DH. we got to turn the page and move on and figure out how you're going to do this now and how you're going to make things work for this ball club. I think the solution is fairly obvious here, and it's that you platoon Dickerson and Duvall and the platoon should not be between your two best hitters. The platoon should be between two very inconsistent hitters, at least as of late. And Duvall, look, he is going to be able to hit a ton of home runs, but throughout his entire career, he's been inconsistent. Last year, he put up crazy numbers, but he was even streaky then. You know, we saw what he did to the Marlins three home runs in one game, but there were also cold streaks for him, too. With Dickerson, he was somebody that, you know, consistently put up numbers, and I still think Dickerson's going to have an overall bounce back year this year. He picked up a big pinch hit for the Marlins in that race series to help give them the lead and ultimately the game that they blew the lead due to an Anthony Bass giving up a three-run shot to Joey Wendell. And to touch on that real quick, I'm not worried about Bass, and I don't think you should be either. He bounced back, had a really clean outing. Yes, he had a big lead, four-five-run lead, but to bounce back right after that and have a clean outing is really encouraging, and that's a big reason why you have a veteran in that position. Sure, does Zach Pop have probably better quality stuff? Yes. Or do some other guys maybe have a better chance to be a swing-and-miss type of closer? I'm sure, but I still want to go with the veteran that has been there before, There is so much that goes into closing, similar, like I talked about this on the stream I did with Fish on the Farm this weekend, closing and kicking is similar where there are a lot of guys that have the skill to do it at a very high level, but that's only half the job, probably more so with kicking and closing, but still, that's only part of the job. The other part of the job is between the ears. Can you turn the page the next day after giving up a really tough, blown save? Can you continue... To battle when the bases end up loaded. You've got a one-run lead and there's one out. Can you make those tough pitches? Can you handle the pressure that is the ninth inning? That is something that not everybody can do, especially if you don't have that veteran experience, and I think Anthony Bass can handle it. He, everything I've seen from this guy, he has what it takes between the ears, and I think that he's going to be the guy, at least for a majority of the season. If somebody steps up and they're just ridiculously lights out, then maybe we could see a committee at times or where the Marlins feel like Bass is is Skill set might be better suited for a certain part of the lineup in the eighth inning, then that could be the situation too. Because I always say the save isn't always had in the ninth, but that also is not really considering the mental side of it. But if you have multiple guys that you're comfortable with closing out ball games at that point, then you can go with when whoever you think should go in based on how they are fit for the three batters that you need to get in whatever inning. And that's how you need to approach it. I think if you're the Marlins eventually, but for now it's clear that Anthony Bass is the most reliable guy as the closer and don't let one bad pitch deter you from that because it shouldn't and that overall series though I mean Cooper and Aguilar were just ridiculous in that third ball game they either drove in or scored seven of the team's 12 runs I mean what else does that duo need to show you and I still again think Dickerson and Duvall can be solid but Duvall also looked great coming off the bench slugging a pinch hit home run he's not that uncomfortable or unaccustomed to coming off the bench in his career he's done on it quite a bit Dickerson more used to being in the starting lineup but an important point on Dickerson too is one of the counter arguments or arguments against Garrett Cooper, is that he is not really built for a full season schedule. And while I still don't think maybe Cooper should be in seven days a week, maybe you give him a day off here and there just because you want to preserve the health or maybe you move him to first here and there and give Aguilar the day off, you can get creative there. But I do think that it's a little bit hypocritical to be hard on Cooper for his liability for injury, I guess, for lack of a better words, while not acknowledging that Dickerson, I think is equal as much of a liability injury-wise Given his history, he's almost never had a full season where he's totally healthy. And it's a shame because he's had some years where he's putting up great numbers, including the year before he joined the Marlins, where if he was healthy on a full season slate, I really believe he would have had a very, very good season. But it was cut short due to some nagging injuries. And he only played 78 ball games between the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Philadelphia Phillies in 2019. He only played 135 games in 2018. He played a career high 150 games in 2017. He was an all star that year, 148 the year before that, but then only 65 ball games in 2015, 131 in 2014. So when you look at that, you, you got to be able to acknowledge that he's not much more of a sure thing to stay healthy either. And that's not really fair to hold that against Cooper, who's also had some fluky injuries. When we talk about defense, yeah, Dickerson did win that one gold glove, but he was pretty abysmal last year defensively. I think he could be better this year, but over Overall, it's not like there's this incredible drop-off for, for the Marlins defensively from Dickerson to Cooper, at least from what we've seen in recent history. I also think it's a little bit overdone that Cooper is this terrible outfielder, especially if you're putting Cooper in right, Dickerson's in left. If you are platooning there, then you have... Cooper and Wright every single day. Duvall is a very good left fielder. So in that platoon, at least half the time, you're going to have a very good defender out there. And then on the other half, You got Dickerson and left. I mean, the Nationals are starting Kyle Schwarber in the outfield, for goodness sakes. I mean, there is an importance to defense. The Marlins already have a phenomenal defense. So if you have a subpar right fielder, is that really a big deal? If you're that concerned about him getting hurt in right field, I think that's a risk you have to take if you're the Marlins. You want to win now. It's not like Cooper is some prized 22-year-old prospect that you just really don't want to get hurt and want to protect. Like, he is going to give you the most value right now and the best way he can give you value is in the lineup so this should not be a topic of debate anymore it's pretty clear that aguilar and cooper need to be in the lineup every single day it's a shame that dickerson can't get more at bats it's a shame that duvall might not be able to get quite as many at bats but maybe the marlins need to go find a trade partner for dickerson The nearly $9 million salary may be hard to move, but he's a free agent next year. We know the Marlins aren't going to bring him back after this year. So if they can find maybe a partner where they exchange slightly undesirable contract for slightly undesirable contract, maybe the Marlins trade Dickerson to a team that needs an outfielder or needs outfield help for a reliever maybe that they've overpaid a little bit with an expiring contract that could make sense for the Marlins. There's something there. I'm not saying they need to do it tomorrow. They still have more time to figure things out Again, somebody could get hurt. And there's a lot of moving parts to that as well. So you want to still have that insurance. You don't want to trade them away and then be kicking yourself afterwards. Like, Oh no, why did we get rid of him so soon? But I do think that if there's somebody that needs to be moved, it makes sense to have it be Dickerson. Even if you eat some of the salary, you're going to save a couple million. You could put that towards potentially going to get somebody at the deadline that you can spend a couple extra million dollars in the second half of the season if you want to try to win now, but it's definitely something worth exploring and worth following at the end of the day. Dickerson has a really good track record. If he's hitting half decent this year for the Marlins, I believe they'll be able to find a partner at some point as the season endures on. And it's not really taking on his full contract, whatever team is going to get him. The larger point is, Cooper and Aguilar line up every day. Also, before I wrap up on the series recap, then get into the Marlins rotation questions. Obviously, we have some unfortunate injuries to 6-0 Sanchez and Eliezer Hernandez, what this means for the team, and also then the preview of this upcoming series series. Jazz Chisholm, man, this guy looks so good. I had my concerns as to whether he was going to be able to hit enough at the major league level and whether he was ready. And I'll be honest, I wanted Isan Diaz to be the guy that wins the job this year because it seemed like at least at the time, and, it still could be the case. I do believe Jazz is going to go through some struggles here and there as the league starts to figure out where to pitch him a bit more. There's going to be an adjustment period, but still he has looked so good. I wanted Isan to win the job because I thought Jazz could use some more at-bats in AAA. Isan has nothing left to prove, but all that's out the window at this point. Jazz is electric. He is so much more dynamic. He has shown that now already in just three ball games. He had a couple hits in game two and he had some really good swings in game one, including a couple barrels just right at guys, but the fact that he was able to impact Game 3, where the Marlins won, despite not picking up a hit, you might be thinking, wait, he didn't have a hit in Game 3? I was only hearing about Jazz Chisholm. Exactly. 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 And that's why I am so hyped on this guy is if he's hitting 240, 250, his speed, his energy, his desire to just make things happen is going to impact the game at levels that you just really can't quantify. He scored a run for the Marlins, essentially single handedly gets on base with a walk, then Gets picked off, steals second, then steals third on the next pitch, and then tags up on a relatively shallow fly ball to right field. The Marlins scored a run without picking up a hit there. That's some Fernando Tatis type of stuff that, or, or even John Bertie. That's something I love about John Birdie, but now you have somebody that's way more dynamic than Birdie that's able to impact the game on the bases as well. I love what we've seen from Jazz. From a mechanical standpoint, he is much different at the plate. He has toned things down. He is swinging more so for contact, and I think he's realizing, I don't need to swing out of my shoes. I can take an easy swing at the ball, and by easy, I mean just compared to what he was doing before – He still takes his aggressive hacks and hitter's counts, which I love, but he's also toning it down based on the situation. He's just trying to barrel balls up, and he realizes with the big league baseballs, how they fly, with how hard the velocity is coming in, He's going to be able to run into baseballs no problem. It's more fun to just make sure you get on base and impact the game that way than just try to leave the yard every time and be a strikeout or home run guy. Being a three true outcome guy when you're Jazz Chisholm, I think he's starting to realize is not fun for him. He's going to get his home runs no matter what, but you can impact the game in ways that other players can't without hitting home runs, even with just walks, base hits. Once you're on base, you have the opportunity to wreak havoc and make a difference. Whereas if you're just trying to run into baseballs all the time, that's not something that should be your role if you're as dynamic as Jazz Chisholm. And it seems like he's embracing that. I've also been really impressed with his ability to lay off of pitches, work the count, spoil, tough two-strike pitches, and again, just hit the ball where it's pitched, something that he did not do as well in the past. I've been so So excited on Jazz Chisholm, and he's been so good for this fan base and really exciting for the ball club moving forward. Let's see if he can keep it rolling and keep that momentum forward. But I've also really liked how he's looked against the left-handed pitchers as well. I'm going to talk about the injuries to the Marlins rotation and then a preview of this upcoming series against the Cardinals. First, a reminder that this episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. We have... A lot going on in the sports world right now. Later on tonight, we have the national championship game. For March Madness. We also have NHL in full swing. NBA season is well into it. We're getting close to the playoffs here. And baseball, of course, well underway. BetOnline covers everything else, though. Awards, TV shows, reality TV. They have real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered on all the news, scores and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today, and you'll receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. All you have to do is use the promo code Locked On. That's one word, Locked On, and you'll get a 50% welcome bonus on that first deposit. You deposit $100, free $50 on top of that with the promo code Locked On. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Now let's talk about this rotation, and we were excited. I was excited. Everybody was excited about seeing all of the youth. And high upside arms in the rotation. Still a ton to be pumped about. Sandy Alcantara looked phenomenal in Game 1. Pablo Lopez looked like Pablo Lopez in his first start as well. And then we have Trevor Rogers, who's about to pitch in about an hour and a half here and may have already pitched by the time you heard me speak. And he was so good in spring training. I've been on this guy since last year. I said, ignore the numbers. He looks really good, and he looks even better now. So I am still super amped on this Marlins rotation. And the cool thing is, despite the really unfortunate injuries to Sixto and Eliezer, the cool thing is the Marlins have so many young guys that it's still going to be fun to see what Nick Neidert can do once he gets his first start in there. I believe it would be the eighth against the Mets. Nyder looked really good in spring training as well, and I had actually floated the idea of Nick Neidert being considered for the rotation spot over Eliezer Hernandez. This is not the way I would ever want it to go, of course. I mean, Eliezer is somebody that I'm still really intrigued on. He showed that he was willing to throw the third pitch in the three innings before he went down. He threw the changeup a lot more. I've heard some really good things about the changeup. Some of my peers, including uh, Daniel DeVivo, was saying that the changeup looked phenomenal um, from what he heard and from what he saw. And, you know, I'll take Daniel's word for that all day. I didn't have his much uh, background on the changeup, but the willingness to throw it, we saw him throw it more, uh, that's a great sign. Still, I really wanted to see Nick Nydert, and I thought that it was kind of a joke to even consider it a competition for Trevor Rogers. I wanted to see more of a competition between Nydert and Eliezer. Unfortunately, Eliezer goes down, and it brings up some questions. I'm not saying that the ship has sailed on him as a starter, and I'm not trying to use the injury as an opportunity to bolster my argument that he shouldn't be a starter, because honestly, I would take a step back from that argument after what we saw if he hadn't gotten hurt. You know, he had actually shown that he was willing to throw the change up. He had thrown it more times in those three innings than he did in multiple starts combined last year. So it was a shame because I, I was watching and I'm like, oh, man, he's throwing the change up. Like, let's go. Let's see this. And then, of course, he goes down. So now I think there's two moving parts that you have to think about here, right, is. Is he going to be able to stay healthy enough to be a starter long-term? Because this is not the first arm injury that he's dealt with. And also, is his third pitch good enough to be a starter as well? So you have two different things somewhat working against him to be in the rotation. One is health, which is very much out of your control, and you got to just see how the Marlins personnel decides and how they feel about it moving forward and those things. And then the other is just pitch usage and pitch quality. And can he be a starter that way? He's not a guy that's going to blow up by you. The fastball's not really that inspiring at 90 to 92 and not a crazy amount of movement. And he does locate it well, and that's why he's able to get away with things. But the slider is the, the bread and butter pitch. If the changeup is a phenomenal pitch, then it's a different story. But the changeup has to be really, really good. Nick Neidert has a really, really good changeup. And I think that if Nick Neidert's shoving here in these couple starts that we're going to see him, because it's going to take a while for Eliezer to get back here. I don't think the Marlins are going to rush him back, similar to Sixto. Sixto is going to take a while. Shoulders are scary. You know how I feel about shoulders. And I just don't see the Marlins rushing Sixto back anytime soon. They were already being cautious with him before he was hurt for this exact reason, which is why the service time manipulation narrative was so frustrating. It wasn't a big narrative, but I saw a few people talking about it, especially people that were not really tied into the Marlins organization outside fans saying, oh, here we go, service time manipulation. No, sometimes teams are just being careful. Even with the team being careful, Sixto Sanchez is on the shelf with some shoulder inflammation and shoulders you don't mess with. The Marlins are going to take their time with him, and I think they should. So who fills in the other spot? Knider clearly is filling in one rotation spot, and I'm excited to see him. I really hope that Eliezer can, you know, come back quickly and we can get a chance to really see him in the rotation, but there's definitely some concerns and questions from multiple angles there that are very valid and we'll have to wait and see. And I hope that he can come back soon, like I said, and there's definitely some moving parts there. I think when we look at who else could slot into this rotation in that 6-0 spot, There's a few different candidates. The obvious is Dan Castano, who looked really good at times in spring training. All of us are kind of waiting on that Dan Castano regression, and I think that there is a huge risk for Dan Castano regression. But at the same time, on the flip side of things, You can't just not put a guy into an opportunity or or not give him a chance to pitch because you think he's not going to do well. Like, he's going to have to not do well before you count that against him, right? Like, we can't just be like, oh, he pitched well last year, but I think he's going to regress a little bit, so let's just never give him an opportunity to regress. So I think that's why it's pretty obvious that he's going to be the candidate to slide in there as well. He showed a little bit more velocity at times in spring training. Let's see what he's got. Let's see what he's got. I mean, at the very least, he's going to be able to Turn in competitive starts. I think at the worst, he's going to give you five innings, four runs or five innings, three runs and just keep you in ball games, which is all the Marlins need right now until they figure things out. It would be really nice if Edward Cabrera was healthy, but unfortunately, that's not the case either. And injuries are biting the Marlins right now. At least this is the deepest they've ever been at the starting pitching position like ever (laughs) or in a very, very, very long time. So that is very helpful for them. But it's definitely scary. Braxton Garrett not quite ready. I think you got to give Castano a few starts before you rush Braxton Garrett there because he needs at least a half a season under his belt at AAA. I love that the velocity was up for Braxton Garrett too because 89 was incredibly concerning last year. I think that Garrett, now that he's been working on a slider, he could be an interesting wild card. The curveball is a really really good pitch that works to both lefties and righties. I want to see what he can do. So let's Wait on Braxton. Let's hope that he gets some time to make some starts. I mean, Dan Castano buys him some time. I don't know what the timeline is on Edward Cabrera. There's a lot of moving parts here. I think that you can't even rule out, especially with the alternate training site for the first couple months of the season, you can't rule out going and signing an Anibal Sanchez or a Jeff Samarja either. I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but again, we're just trying to buy some time here. If they can turn in just decent starts while you wait for somebody to get healthy or you wait for Braxton Garrett to be ready, there's a lot of variables which is good right you have a lot of different situations that can work out here I know you wish that the rotation was all together and that everybody was good to go but all of the contingency plans are interesting where Edward could get healthy at some point Eliezer or Sixto you're hoping will be healthy sometime soon but none of those guys you can really count on you're hoping one of those guys beats their timeline if not you're hoping that Dan Castano is a little bit better than he has been if that's not the case then you're hoping Braxton Garrett is ready to go and actually surprises without much AAA time. And then if that doesn't work, you have a veteran that maybe you can pick up. So there's a lot of moving parts. And I think for that reason, I'm not too too worried about it. I'm not going to freak out. Because you look at rotations across the league. I mean, the Nationals right now, I've referenced the Nationals twice now. And it's not like they're some great team, but everybody has them finishing ahead of the Marlins. They have John Lester in their rotation right now on purpose without injuries and Joe Ross. So if you mix in Jeff Samarja as your fifth guy, I don't think it's the end of the world. You can handle that. And I still think that's like a plan C. So, again, not too worried about it. The rotation should still be entirely competitive and Nick Neidert will have to step up for sure. And Trevor Rodgers, if he struggles then, then I'll start being concerned, which I'll talk about now in the next part as I preview this upcoming series with the Cardinals and why I think the Marlins actually have the edge in this series despite the Cardinals being a loaded-up team for this season offensively. Before I get into that, a message from another sponsor, Bill Bar, longtime sponsor of ours, and we've been telling you about Bill Bar now for a while. That's the best-tasting protein bar on the market, and they are low-calorie, low-sugar, high in protein, high in fiber, and taste great. They're covered in chocolate. It's really tough to beat, and honestly, they're going against each other right now. All the flavors are duking it out on BuiltBar.com. And bar underscore built on Twitter as we try to find out what the best tasting protein bar is for Built Bar. And if you haven't tried one yet, it's a good way to find out which flavor you should try first. If you have tried Built Bar, it's a good way to cast your vote and see where your favorite flavor stacks up. And maybe you have some other flavors you got to try. If you go to builtbar.com right now and use the promo code locked15, that's locked15, you'll get 15% off your next order. That's locked one five to get 15% off your next order at BuiltBar.com, And you can also see who won the final matchup here for Built Bar's best tasting protein bar. So let's wrap up here with the series preview where the pitching situation is advantage Marlins, despite a really, really unfortunate situation health wise for the Marlins rotation. Game one. Which now is in an hour and 20 minutes, is between Trevor Rogers and Danielle Ponce de Leon. And Trevor Rogers was really, 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 really good in spring training. And I think that he is going to come out hot today against a lineup that you think would probably give him some trouble. And it could, because any lineup that has Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt in it, as well as a really exciting Dylan Carlson and Paul DeYoung and Tommy Edmond, there's just some really scrappy and fun and impact players in that lineup. I still think that Trevor Rodgers can keep them in check. Righties, surprisingly, don't hit well against Rogers. The fastball is miserable for lefties. The changeup, though, is a really good pitch against righties, and I think he's going to give a lot of guys fits. With that changeup today, and it's probably going to be a very right-handed heavy lineup for the Cardinals. They might honestly be all righty today with Dylan Carlson, the switch hitter, batting from the right side. The changeup, I think, will give him fits, too, as Carlson really struggled with the off-speed last year, though. I think Carlson is a lot stronger this year. I've talked about him on Locked On MLB Prospects, and I think he's a legitimate contender for NL Rookie of the Year, especially with Kebrian Hayes, unfortunately, going down. The other contender is now Jazz Chisholm, who is looking much more optimistic as well with the race opening up as Kebrian Hayes was kind of far and away the favorite, and he still probably will be depending on how long he is out just because of the defensive prowess he has as well. We might see the Dean machine today. Dean Machine, Revenge Game, that's possible too. I'm sure we'll see him at some point this season. But a little bit on Ponce de Leon. He was not good last year in a shortened season, but he was not great. Four nine six ERA, five six four FIP, and thirty-two and two thirds innings. I just don't really think he's anything special. I mean, with the way the Marlins lineup has looked, that they came out strong in the last ball game, I think they're going to keep that momentum rolling today with a guy that's got good swing and miss stuff, but walks a lot of hitters and has throughout his major league and minor league career. He walked 20 in 32 innings last year. He's walked 59 and 114 in a thirds innings in his big league career so far. And if you remember, Miguel Rojas worked three walks in the last ball game for the Marlins in that leadoff spot. I can't stand Corey Dickerson in the leadoff spot. I think that Miguel Rojas is better in that position. We'll see if the Marlins decide to go with him in the leadoff spot this series, because when you look at the matchups, Ponce de Leon struggles throwing strikes. Game two, John Gant, who has surprised and been a pretty decent guy now moving from the bullpen that the Cardinals are trying to make him a starter. He struggles with command and throwing strikes. That's another guy that could walk a ton of Marlins and a loaded middle of the order with Cooper, Aguilar, and probably Brian Anderson will make those guys pay for walking the hitters ahead of them and in recent years, the last season and a half, so to speak, you know, Miguel Rojas has been a lot better at working free passes. In the past, he was similar to Dickerson, where the walk rates were kind of in the five to six percent rate, which is below average league average, right around eight percent. And Dickerson has still kind of stayed in that eight percent range or lower. Um, I think it went up a tick for him last year at eight percent. Rojas worked it up to eleven point two percent. In 2020. And so far this year, he's already walked a ton with the three walks in the last ball game. And technically speaking, here through 13 plate appearances, he's walking 23% of the time thanks to those walks. But regardless, he's been doing a better job of taking the free passes. And if we're talking about uh, a couple pitchers here that are walking a lot of guys, I want somebody that's got a better chance to, you know, work the count, get on base, and set the table for what's going to be probably two, three, four of. Marte, Aguilar, Cooper, Anderson, in whatever order you want it to be. And maybe you have Dickerson, depending on how you want to go with the lineup in the bottom part of the order, or you go with a Duval in one of these games, regardless of the Dickerson situation. I just think that you got to have guys that are going to take their walks and get on base at the top of the order. And Rojas has been demonstrating that as of late, and that is something that you know has been a big struggle for Gant and Ponce De Leon just to even double down on that. He walked 13 in 17 innings this spring training. The Marlins need to jump on this guy. They're going to get opportunities with runners on base unless Ponce De Leon is totally different. And Gant is totally different. But also keep in mind who the Marlins have going in these first two ball games. Trevor has been really solid. We assume that he's going to continue what he's doing. And Alcantara has been just absurd. He looked fantastic again in game one of his season. And that's going to be advantage Marlins. And I'd argue that game three. Jack Flaherty versus Pablo Lopez is advantage Marlins. Flaherty has looked bad, like really bad since the second half of last year, since spring training, and now. His first start this year, he goes four innings, six earned runs against the Reds. Pablo Lopez looked really strong in his first game. We saw Flaherty against the Marlins in spring training as well, and he didn't look good against the Marlins in those games either. He's just been really struggling. I'm not sure totally what's up. That's a dive that I'm going to have to do soon to see what's going on with Jack Flaherty, but he hasn't been Jack Flaherty. So I would argue that Pablo Lopez is advantage on Jack Flaherty as well. So you could argue all three matchups in this series. Our advantage Marlins pitching-wise. And that's a huge, huge bonus for this team, especially against a very good Cardinals offense. And now as they play at home, I think this could be an opportunity for them to take two out of three or potentially sweep with this really interesting matchup that the Marlins have. I'd say today is the tone setter, right? Like if the Marlins win today, a sweep is very, very possible. Our Contra is going to out-duel Gantz, no problem. And then we'll have to see what kind of flarity we get. But if you win this one, this is a toss-up because we need to see what Trevor Rogers does coming out this first start It's going to be interesting to see how the Marlins can set the tone the rest of the series. Could you imagine what a sweep would do heading into New York? Uh, That would be huge. All of a sudden, the Marlins are over five hundred and rolling into New York and start to get a lot of division games underway. I mean, that would be a ton of fun and would be a huge, huge bonus for the Marlins. A little note on Ponce de Leon, because I like to just find weird things with players. He was drafted four times. Four times. He was drafted in the 24th round out of high school, 38th round, out of Cypress College, which is where he went at JUCO uh, for one year. Then he went to Houston. He was draft eligible that year at Houston. Went 14th round, didn't sign. Then went to Embry-Riddle in Florida and was drafted in the ninth round. So I guess technically speaking, turning down all of those uh, offers or all those drafts worked in his favor. Although you could maybe say, I don't know what the situation was, 14th round when you have junior leverage, probably could have got more money than ninth round as a senior. But still, Pretty wild. Drafted four times. Uh, talk about a guy that's on pro radars for a while. Uh, but that was just an interesting little tidbit on him. I still think that he's not very good and he doesn't throw a lot of strikes. And the Marlins should take advantage of that. And Rogers, he's going to have to throw strikes too. He cannot have the uh, Ponce de Leon effect on him because that's the only time Rogers gets into trouble. So we'll see how Rogers looks. I'm expecting High volume strikeouts. I'm expecting five strong innings from him. And then the bullpen is going to be the question. But I think the bullpen is better than people are making it out to be. And I know that's kind of crazy coming from me. But again, I really liked the additions of Floro and Curtis. Floro has looked great. Blyer is Blyer. He looked good in his last outing. I'm not worried about Bass. As I said earlier, he's going to come back and look solid. And how about Zach Pop? He looked really good in his first outing. Gets that one out of the way. Also, not worried about Paul Campbell. Imagine you are expecting to pitch at some point in the series to make your MLB debut, but all of a sudden the starting pitcher goes down, and on essentially zero notice, they tell you, hey, Paul, you got to come in, make your big league debut, uh, basically cold, get ready, and also you're going to be pitching against your former team. Uh, That's a whirlwind. And I still thought he held his own. There were some little rough-ups here and there. But that's just not fair to a guy. So I'm not going to put any stock in that outing. And that's just something I wanted to touch on as well. I think Marlins take two out of three. Potentially sweep. We'll see if I jinx them. But that's my take on this series. Marlins have a very, very good draw heading into New York after this one as they'll have to go face Jacob deGrom for what feels like the 90th time in 100 games against the Mets, but it will be really good if the Marlins can take at least two out of three in this series to head into division play. As always, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the series preview and everything that came with it, and I appreciate those that take the time to leave ratings as they help me immensely with visibility and just knowing how I'm doing, so thank you so much to those who have done that, and thank you so much to those that have piled on to listen here as the season has started. The numbers have been growing and it's been a blast to see those numbers grow thank you thank you and I look forward to talking Marlins baseball with you tomorrow hopefully the Marlins will be up 1-0 on this three-game series with the Cardinals